Hi, I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. In today's episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I speak with Vic Pillay. Vic is a dispute resolution lawyer who is qualified to practice law in England and Wales, Singapore and Australia. His practice focuses on an early resolution of disputes and a keen eye for extenuating circumstances which may prevent the resolution of a dispute. Vic started off his practice in shipping, transport and logistics law and currently assists businesses with all business related disputes. In his downtime, Vic loves the aviation industry. He can sit for hours watching planes land and take off. Next in his sight is a private pilot's license. He loves reading about infrastructure projects, the high-speed railway revolution in China, the metro bills in various cities across India, and fantasizing about major projects and the impact on communities around the world. In our discussion, we talk about dealing with multi-party negotiations, managing tough opening offers, getting the right people to the table, treating your opponents as individuals, dealing with a power imbalance, negotiating across cultures, the danger of relying on stereotypes, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Vic Pillay. So welcome to the show today, Vic. Thanks for coming along and joining me. Thanks very much, Nicole. Thanks for having me today. It's an absolute pleasure. So Vic, I know you've done some fairly interesting large-scale negotiations with multiple parties, and we're going to be talking a lot about some of those negotiations and some of your experiences. But before we do that, I was wondering if you could just briefly explain to the listeners who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, So I'm a dispute resolution lawyer, and um, I'm qualified to practice in England and Wales, in Singapore, and of course here in Australia. So I started off my practice in shipping, transport and logistics. Uh, and at the moment I handle a range of commercial disputes that transcend uh, you know, com- these, these sorts of industries. So look, as I said, and I know we've had a couple of chats about negotiation through various connections that we've got. And I really like the fact that you've had this amazing experience through your career, particularly, I believe, through your shipping law career, where you've had to deal with some fairly large scale, fairly complex negotiations with lots and lots of different parties. I was wondering if there was one of those that sort of stands in your mind as a negotiation that you've managed to learn a lot from. Yeah, so right off the bat, a a case that we handled with, I think there were about four or five different parties jumps to mind. And I think there's a particular challenge when you're dealing with multiple parties and each party having their own interests and their own uh, what, what, what essentially they want from the mediation uh, from as far from from an outcome perspective. So perhaps I'll just delve very briefly into the facts of this case. So this involved a tugboat and it was towing an unmanned barge. 
on the barge was a truck carrying dangerous cargo. And in the truck, the driver of the truck was actually seated and it was underway in the open seas. So a series of events occurred and unfortunately, the barge capsized and the truck which was on it sank as well. Now, the most unfortunate part of all of this was the driver who was seated in the truck uh, lost his life as well. So a proceeding was then commenced in the courts by the deceased estate and all of the different parties were brought in to the court proceeding. So that's the tug owner, tugboat owner, the barge owner, the um, truck owner, the and our clients. Our clients were the cargo owner. So they owned the chemicals that was being transported on this barge. So mediation was made mandatory by the court, just given the number of parties involved. And for mediations, I always make sure that I meet clients. We have a pre-mediation meeting a week before the mediation, at most seven days before, because I want clients to be in the right headspace to deal with the dispute and to deal with the potential settlement. Fantastic. I find that when you do it, yeah, I find when you do it way before clients are just, you know, it, it does make a big difference on the day of the mediation as well. I totally uh, agree. And and I, as a mediator, try to do that pre-mediation meeting in most cases as well for exactly the same reason. So I think that mindset piece as they come into the negotiations is critical. So I'm, I'm really um, interested to hear that you've been doing that as a lawyer as well. So Yeah, absolutely. And with this particular client, I think, there was more of a challenge reaching out to them. And one of the reasons, so their point of view was this, if I were to ship a parcel, let's say using Amazon, and then I receive a lawyer's letter and get dragged into court proceedings, you know, a, a few months down the road, I would, I would genuinely and understandably be quite confused and concerned as to why I'm involved in it. So as far as they were, they were concerned, they were the cargo owners, why am I being dragged into this? And at a, at a principled level, they just did not want to contribute anything. They, they felt that they had no role to play uh, in this entire uh, series of events that occurred. So after the first meeting, I figured that it was actually best to have a second follow-up meeting and include those who were involved. So the initial meeting we had was with the director, and then we included the the parties or the, the individuals who are actually involved in the transaction at that stage as well. Now they had quite a big say with, with the director and um, they after the second meeting, I, I got the sense that the director was in a better space to actually deal with the set, potential settlement. So that was all I good. Love, I love what yeah. you've done there again, because yeah. you know, as I often say, it's the preparation going into a negotiation. If you look at the mediation as the negotiation here, um, making sure you've got the right people telling the story, whether they're there at the negotiation itself or not. Um, you know, so often I think things stall because you haven't got the right people involved. So it's really, um, once again, you know, the process there is, is perfect. That's absolutely right. And they were present at the mediation as well. So on the day of the mediation, unfortunately, when we sat down, one of the first things that happened, which usually happens in these sorts of mediations, is for each party to set out what their, their, their backgrounds are and what their version of events. Um, and our clients then went on to say, we're not going to be contributing, we're not going to throw our hand into the ring, uh, we're just not going to be doing anything. Now that at the outset, really did scuttle things quite a bit. 
because I think creating that right environment is so important at the outset, especially when you've got so many different parties parties involved in this. Um, and when we got out to the breakout rooms, there was not much headway because that one comment or that sharing by our clients really set things off for the other parties who were involved as well. So we went through throughout the whole day. I think it was late afternoon. We didn't make much headway. Uh, I would say after lunch, probably when I figured, you know what, let's just give this one last shot. So I reached out to the barge owner. So if you recall, I mentioned that this was an unmanned barge. So the barge owners, I, in my mind, I thought perhaps they would be in a similar position. They would think we could, we could not have done anything differently. We provide the barge. We don't provide, we've got no control over whatsoever over what was to happen or what couldn't have happened. So I reached out to the lawyers and told them, hey, you know what? I was quite upfront with them and said, this is what my clients are thinking. This is, it's not good if uh, from a settlement perspective, uh, what do you think? And he then shared about his clients and they're sharing a similar sort of a sentiment. And I figured, you know what? Let's just get them in a room together. I spoke to the mediator and said, you know, that may help things. So they got in and, and they had quite a lengthy conversation. Uh, it lasted for almost an hour. By the end of it, our client said, okay, you know what, we're going to contribute a nominal sum like the barge owners as well, because they were prepared to contribute something. And that was what kicked things off. And we then started to talk about figures. And there were insurers involved as well. So that process was fairly quick. And by the end of the night, we managed to reach a settlement, which was fantastic. So something as small as that can actually trigger and unlock something in clients sometimes. So you can get another party not so much as an alliance against someone else, but to actually get things moving from a, from a commercial settlement perspective. Yeah, I love that too. And, you know, one of the things that struck me as you started telling that story is by starting the mediation saying that they weren't going to put any money on the table, your clients created this interest in saving face now, because if you come out really firm with that, um, the minute you do put something on the table, you've got a, you've made a concession, which... Um, can cause you embarrassment but by actually then going through that process and having some talks to be able to come back and go all right well I've got a reason for why I've moved away to be able to get them to that process where they can do that a little bit better makes a lot of sense as well. That's exactly right. I'm interested in and I'm not sure how long ago this was so maybe you won't remember I mean one of the things obviously as a mediator is I'm often testing these sorts of cases where people genuinely don't believe they should have to contribute anything. I'm testing that often against the BATNA or the, the best alternative, which is what's it going to cost you to go to court and successfully defend? And I'm wondering if you remember whether that played into the discussions at all on the day. Yeah, absolutely. And when you have this many parties involved, it's quite difficult for a lawyer as well to, to effectively estimate how much or what what is up for legal costs for each party and there were so many claims and cross claims counterclaims all over the place there were third parties involved so from a cost perspective that can be quite complicated but ultimately that's the risk and that's the risk that we we need to explain to clients they they would have to bear moving forward um, and in a case like this they're all business owners so they have a sense of that commercial they've, they've got that commercial sense about them but they've also understandably got that principled approach uh, to why they think they shouldn't be involved so absolutely that was a conversation i think I had at the first meeting and the conversation I had on that day itself um, that played somewhat into uh, their, their decision-making process, but I think the barge owners really kicked things off uh, or helped to get that discussion going. 
And so as a result of that negotiation, what are some of the processes that you have put in place going forward to sort of embed some of your experiences and the the things you've learned from that negotiation? Yeah, I think it solidified the need for a pre-mediation meeting. And I make sure, again, to make sure that I had that meeting with them one week before and, and to get it fresh in their minds. But honestly, that was one of the cases, or it, I mean, it happens now and again, but one of the cases where you just can't predict, clients were, after the second meeting, clients were in a position of being willing to provide a nominal sum. And on that day, without us knowing, they just right off the bat say, no, we're not going to provide anything. And that's that, uh, you know, so <laughs> I think we've got to also play this off the cuff sometimes and, and take things one step at a time. No matter what, you can prepare, you'll have your strategies before you, uh, but it will change on that day. I think it's the lesson that I've taken away. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, you know, to the extent you can, you can't predict everything that will come up and some things are so unlikely, but even addressing some of those challenges with clients going, look, this is what we've decided today. You've got some ch- some time before the mediation itself. Please let me know if you change your mind because it will be imperative to the negotiation strategy on the day and That's you right. know, trying to bank them. I mean, I often will look at people, even when we get to settlement, I will have a conversation before we leave the mediation in case they change their mind afterwards. And I sort of prepare them to try and help them realise that, you know, whatever they've thought about down the track might be slightly different to the thinking on the day and and there are good reasons why they've got to where they've got to and so on. So that's a really interesting, you know, I think those sorts of negotiations, particularly as you said, this was actually around someone's life and a fairly tragic accident. So you've got to balance all of those emotional things. And I know none of the people in the room were necessarily emotional because it is the business and the interest. But at, at the same time, I guess you've got to think about what's really behind all of this at the same time. So it's challenging. That's exactly right. Um, that sense of fairness that the deceased estate, they were the plaintiffs in the court proceeding, that the sense of fairness that they had was somewhat different to the sense of fairness, I would say, um, that the businesses had. So that there was a divergence there, but yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So that was great. And I know you had another interesting shipping example that I've heard you talk about previously where you had to deal with an abandoned cruise ship, I believe. That's exactly right. So we acted for the owners of the cruise ship and the the cruise ship was chartered out. So the, the terms of the charter meant that the charterer was required to employ their own crew members. They had to effectively deal with the ship on their own. So a series of events occurred essentially leading the charterer to abandon the vessel. And this was in one of Indonesia's islands. So it was quite a random uh, place that they abandoned the vessel. But that also meant that our clients did not have the sort of control, physical control or ability to control the vessel as they'd liked if the ship was abandoned, abandoned elsewhere. So this was when I was based in Singapore. So we, we weren't physically very far away from where the ship was, maybe about a two-hour ferry ride, if you will. And the crew members were not paid. Our clients were not paid higher. The crew members were not paid either. And they said they're not going to leave the ship until they're paid. And at some point, this lasted for a few weeks before our clients reached out to us. And by that stage, the crew members were already threatening to sell parts of the ship to get compensation for themselves to sell it in the black market. And these things do happen uh, in the shipping industry from you know, time and again. So it's not just yeah. an abandoned ship, but it's actually a ship that's in someone else's control who's starting to take bits away from you. That's exactly right. It was essentially in in the effective control of the crew members at that stage. And 
So the game plan was for us as lawyers to get on board the vessel to negotiate with the crew members. So our clients were, strictly speaking, also duped by the charterers. So our clients, uh, it's what we call a bareboat charter, where the charterer handles everything. Our clients essentially washes their hands off and just collects rent, uh, or what we call hire uh, for, from a shipping perspective. So. This was definitely not a typical negotiation where you're, where you're dealing with other lawyers or business owners in the comforts of a meeting or boardroom. Uh, this was us going into a fairly hostile space on board a vessel. So for starters, the crew was made up of different ranks, different roles uh, within the vessel. So the higher ranking officers had a better understanding of the role of lawyers and um, why we were there. The crew members were also of various nationalities. You had Ukrainian crew members, Indian, Filipino, Chinese. Not all of them spoke English fluently as well. So when we arrived on board the vessel, the crew members had already been on board for a while, like I said, for a few weeks. And there were frequent or occasional, I would say not frequent, power outages, lack of food, drinking water, things like that. And um, there was a general sense of, there was palpable anger. You could feel it when we when we got on board. Uh, they just wanted to get paid and get back to their families and uh, continue working. So we had considered speaking with the officers first. So you had the captain, first officer and so on. And before speaking to the crew, just to get some sense of control. Uh, but then we thought about it a little bit more and we decided on our way there, we decided, no, we're going to get everyone down. Uh, from so in, in the mess area, the canteen of sorts on board. So we got everyone down there and we spoke to everyone. We were very clear about who we were, who we acted for, and why we were there. We controlled the pace of, of the conversations as well. And after introducing ourselves, we left it open. So we did not want the crew members to think that we had some sort of a, or, or that the officers were selling them out. We wanted them to know that we we're talking to everyone, regardless of rank on this on this vessel. And we're talking to all of you together. We're sending the same message out. That's so, really interesting, isn't yeah. it? Because you don't want to do a deal with the, the officers and then find out that it's actually not accepted by the ranks because presumably there's no formal authority there for the officers to actually represent anybody. I mean, this is, this is presumably a negotiation sort of outside the law in that presumably the boat owner had the ability to just, you know, they were effectively trespassing, I would have thought, on the boat. Is that correct? Yeah, so there were a few issues there. Firstly, it would be how do we get the ship within our physical or the owner's physical control? But the, the owners would have the rights to enter the ship. But when you do do that, the crew members are going to be there. There's just no way to get them off the vessel unless you negotiate. Now, the other part that you mentioned is really interesting as well, because ultimately, even if we do reach a settlement, they are all from different countries. They're individuals. I mean, from a litigation perspective, serving any sort of proceeding on them is going to be impossible. There will be jurisdictional issues, so which is the proper forum to be commencing these things. Um, even if you've got a clause in the contract, that can be disputed as well. So things like that, Th those were practical issues that we had to deal with. Uh, but that, that made it all the more important to make sure every single person was on board, uh, no pun intended, with the, <laughs> with the settlement. So what, what happened was we let them speak. So after we introduced ourselves, we let them speak. Anyone could ask any questions and they were all quite open. For those who couldn't, didn't have a good command of English, there was always a representative, one of the crew members who could speak that English, uh, to, who could speak English or could, could speak that language, uh, who could translate it to us um, and interpret what they were saying. And now we could tell that they were starting to 
ease a little bit and to understand where we were coming from. And by this stage, we had not provided them with any further details. Uh, we were trying to understand, we made a comprehensive list of all of their issues, what they wanted done. And at the end of it, we had a good list going and we could we were in a position to seek further instructions from the owners. But there, I think there were three things that we did from a strategic point of view prior to even going on board the ship. So the first was we made sure that we knew every the names of every single crew member there to the, to, to the point of even memorizing their names and we could see their passport photos. So when we addressed some of them by their names, they were, they were genuinely quite shocked because they then knew that they were not just a cog in the machine. They, they, they were real people with real concerns that we wanted to address. The second thing we did was also to get to discuss with the owners beforehand what they were willing to compromise and what concessions they were willing to make. We recognised that there was a power imbalance. Yeah, you're dealing with a large ship owner with many cruise ships, cruise ship, uh, cruise ships and various other vessels actually, and with crew members who and the way they perceive themselves as well um, in, in the negotiating table. So with that in mind, I figured that conceding some important points at the start would be good. One of the main things that we said after taking down all of their concerns was that our clients were willing to provide repatriation expenses. So they were willing to pay for the flight tickets for all of them to get back to their home countries. Um, and the second important thing was that our clients had already secured uh, and gotten a vendor to send supplies. So food, water, and they didn't need to worry about that. And then we went on to talk about the fact that we understand where they are coming from and that it's not a quick process of let's just pay them off and, and get on with life. But there were key issues and considerations we had to cons uh, that the owners had to consider um, before we could sort these issues out. So by the end of it, by the end of the conversation, they were much more at ease and we we needed to inspect the vessel as well so we said you know we need to inspect we want to walk around and they were quite willing to actually show us around showing us their cabins and things like that and that, uh, uh, by the end of it I would say almost about 90% of them were fully on board again no pun intended they <laughs> they knew what uh, was at stake and our clients knew what was what was at stake as well I mean the loss that could have arisen from parts being sold off and, and damage to the vessel was great. And there was also a time sensitive nature to this and our clients appreciated that. So in this situation, clients fully understood uh, what they should have given and, and what they were prepared to give and um, how they were gonna recoup those losses as well separately. That's, that's such an amazing story, Vic. And I think, you know, even down to the strategy of actually learning their names and treating them like individuals. And, you know, I can imagine that for a lot of these sort of lower level crew workers, their basic concern would have been, I'm stuck in this foreign country, how do I get home? So, you know, managing to give them comfort around that first up uh, seems like a fantastic strategy and it sounds like it worked as well, which is wonderful. So I'm going to take you for a bit of a different tack because these are fairly big, you know, very much those shipping based ones. But I know now you're doing a lot more general commercial litigation work. Have you found there's a difference between the negotiation style that you need to use in the general work to what you used when you were doing the shipping negotiations? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the main 
differences, I think, is the emotional aspect of things. So when we're dealing with smaller businesses or even medium-sized businesses, they frequently involve either family companies or their own life savings have gone into into these companies and they've spent their lives building companies up and building the business up um, and each relationship means so much more to them and it's not just a commercial relationship. So when they get into disputes, settling the disputes has a much larger emotional element to it that we need to deal with. And I use the word deal with quite purposefully because at the meeting, it's not just about this is your best case, worst case scenario, the legal costs and the risks, but to get them speaking about their real concerns and what they're really upset about so that by the time we get to the mediation they've already aired a good part of that out and they would be in a better space to deal with it this is in stark contrast i would say to a to the shipping industry or transport logistics where disputes are fairly common firstly uh, just given the nature of the of the industry and parties usually because of the nature of the industry they usually have got a budget for dealing with disputes so it's all about the numbers it tends to be more about the numbers than than for smaller businesses or medium-sized businesses. So I definitely see that difference in the general commercial space uh, with SMEs, for sure. Yeah, I think I I would echo those thoughts from my experience on the mediation side as well. And, you know, I think sometimes just the value for a small business owner to be able to express their disappointment and, you know, the, the impact it's had on them personally at a, at a forum where they know the other person is listening, even if they don't agree with it, I think there's there's a lot of power in that and it's it's an important part of the process. But getting those right level of, of emotions, what's helpful and what's not helpful is, is often the challenge, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. And look, I know you said earlier you're admitted in a, a number of jurisdictions and you've worked in various parts of the globe. What's been your experience of the impact of different cultures in negotiations and, and what have you learned about dealing with that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so even in Australia, we are just given our proximity to Asia, we deal are increasingly dealing a lot with different nationalities, different ethnicities, different people of different cultural backgrounds. And that's no different in mediations and disputes that arise. So frequently we find ourselves in mediations where there are so many different types of people and the way they deal with disputes are very different. So we tend to assume from a business perspective that people handle business disputes similarly, they run businesses similarly, but there's such a huge cultural aspect to things given the realities on the ground, wherever that is, be it India, China, Japan, uh, where businesses run are run a certain way uh, and the way people in power within the company handle disputes is also different. So for example, there was a mediation and this this um, frequently pops to my mind as well. When we stepped into the mediation and there was almost a shouting match at the start. Uh, it was a very, uh, almost an aggressive, I would say, approach to um, airing out their grievances. And in my mind, I thought, oh, that, that's it. You know, this is going to be the quickest mediation ever. We are, we're going to be out of here. There's not going to be a settlement. And it was actually one of the quicker mediations. We settled before lunch. And the reason was that they aired it out, but that was how they spoke. And after doing all of that, they were prepared to actually settle. Yeah. And where were they from if it is it relevant um, what cultural background they came from? So they, they were from India. Both parties were from India. And I think when both parties are from a particular country or particular cultural background, they may be able to accept something like that. And again, that's a generalisation as well, because you know India is a vast country, so you can have 
huge differences. But in this particular situation, they happen to be uh, from the same region as well. So I think they understood their way of settling the dispute. And it was it was really quick. Yeah, I think that's interesting. There's a great article I remember reading a couple of years ago in the Harvard Business Review about getting to, I think they called it getting to yes, yeah, we, and all these other variations of um, the word yes in different languages. But it was fascinating because they talk about, you know, some cultures are much more tolerant of aggression and it's a normal part of a negotiation process. So they said, for example, if you were in a negotiation with a stereotypical German and you said, I completely disagree with you, we will never give you what you want, Mm. that German would take that as bring it on, now we're negotiating. Uh, Whereas if you did that, for example, I think the example they use in the article is if you did that with a Japanese person, Mm. they would be like, this is ridiculous. This is is not a negotiation we're leaving. So, and, and the challenge, of course, with the cultural difference is you've got these stereotypes that you can learn and go, okay, well, I'm dealing with Chinese or an mm. Indian or a German or whatever it might be, but not everyone fits the stereotype. So it's it's sort of easing your way in with some assumptions about how they might act, but being That's prepared right. to flex, isn't it? That's absolutely right. And I, I've got two points there. So the first is, I think, The starting point for me is frequently to take the lead of my clients and you can understand or try to understand the way in which your client settles the dispute from their cultural background. And with that as the lead, I think the second main point is about experience. When I deal with uh, different people from different um, cultures, I I sort of get a little understanding of how they tend to approach situations. And that's a really really good point you've made as well because we need to be careful not to generalize when we see who who the other side is or who our clients are but at the same time that does play a role in our strategies and how we're going to approach the negotiation and mediation. Yeah fantastic. Now um, Vic obviously as a lawyer you negotiate all the time it's probably you know one of your most commonly used skills as a lawyer. Um, That's right. Aside from your experience in real life, have you have had any opportunities to develop those skills in a more formal setting? And, and what have you done in terms of formal negotiation training over your career? Yeah, so I've not undertaken any formal training. I've always thought that, well, at least not yet. I've always wanted to put myself, uh, throw myself in the deep end, which um, <laughs> I had a few times uh, in shipping law in my previous uh, job as well. And in, even in my current role as well. Uh, you know, having to deal with these situations where you don't always encounter. Uh, But I would definitely like to get formal training. That's an area where I think both litigation lawyers and dispute resolution lawyers would find that they are comfortable doing that. And there's a huge, uh, huge scope for parties to settle disputes before going to court. Because I think court proceedings can be are increasingly costly and they can be quite uncertain. So that space of settling disputes b- before going to court is so important. Um, and definitely getting training, formal training in, in that is something I'm looking at. I've been uh, accepted to Melbourne Uni's master's program. So that's one of the modules that I've wanted to be uh, wanted to focus on the mediation and the uh, negotiation modules as well. Fantastic. Yeah, and you know, I'm a big fan of mediating before litigation starts. Um, for all the reasons that you've just described. I mean, it is very expensive. Look, that's been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you about some of the the various experiences that you have. I know some of our listeners are relatively junior lawyers who are just starting out their career. What would be your top tips for them to develop their negotiation skills? I would say 
don't wait for tomorrow, do it today. So sometimes we think we may not be ready or may not be in that space to actually attempt negotiations or run their first mediation, but just do it. Uh, you'll be surprised with what you can bring to the table. And with each experience, you learn so much. Don't beat yourself up about it. Learn from it and continue. Fantastic advice, Vic. Thank you so much. So look, Thanks I've had a real, um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I know there might be some listeners who would like to reach out and talk to you further, either about your negotiation style or about disputes that they might have and need some assistance with. What's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, the best way is through LinkedIn. So my name is Vic Pile, so that's Vic with a K. Um, or you can look up my profile on Rankin Business Lawyers website as well. Fantastic. And I'll make sure to put those details in the show notes for everybody as well. Thank you very much. So once again, thanks very much for joining us, Vic. I really appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Nicole. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, view presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application form. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.